back again, Mike, as usual. Yes, sir. It's uh, been a bit, but uh, now we have a, a full docket of stuff to discuss, analyze, prognosticate over even. I should say maybe back as unusual because we haven't <laughs> exactly been meeting on a regular basis here, but uh, yeah, I think... I expect as uh, things start to liven up as uh, 2021 proceeds, you know, might have a little bit more um, to report on. That's, that's right. Hopefully we'll be uh, a little bit more energized here with uh, new stuff coming out, but uh, yeah, it sure seems like... it's going to actually get the gamer pants on and play this weekend. Oh, I don't know who that is. It's certainly not me, right? I'm not I'm not going to play 40K. I'm just going to sit and play it on Tabletop Simulator. Ah, yes. But, I mean, I hear some people uh, get their jollies off game with, uh, Tabletop Simulator. So. Yeah. Well, in, <laughs> in any case, uh, we've got a bunch of stuff to cover tonight, actually. Uh, you wouldn't think with nothing really going on in terms of new stuff. Uh other than Bellacore coming out. Um, you wouldn't think we'd have stuff to actually cover, but it turns out there's quite a bit happening. Um, I don't know where we kind of crack into this one, but I'm glad we're, we're going to try and talk, talk a little bit about it. Um, it's a tough topic to really kind of have, um, you know, a, a, a productive conversation or a constructive conversation on, uh, but cheating is really what it boils down to. It's a pretty somber topic. Um, I'm sure that anyone who's been in the hobby for a long enough time will have encountered it or um, perhaps even accidentally indulged in a bit of cheating. And um, Even unknowingly. Even unknowingly. Uh, the, the important thing, though, is to, um, I guess, approach it constructively, um, or at least not destructively. Um, but so I'm, I'm sure some of our listeners do not follow the 40k news as much as, uh, some of us, uh, but recently a fairly, uh, well-known, uh, 40k player was caught on stream, uh, cheating, uh, effectively he was con very consistently throughout the game, um, flubbing dice rolls, saying he did, performed better than he actually had, or uh, mostly performing better than he actually had on the dice rolls in order to uh, perform better at the game. Um, I, I don't know which tournament he was at. I, I think for the sake of us not drawing a target on anybody's heads, we're really not going to do more than say that to identify who that was. But it's... Um, making some pretty big waves, at least um, in the circles I swim in uh, for 40K. I, I think David can agree that we're all rather shocked that, that a player of that caliber would um, result, resort to that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, however, as much as it sort of pains me to admit it, it's not the first time I've seen very good players um, fall back onto that whenever things aren't necessarily going their way. Um, I know a guy that lives and breathes 40K, been to a lot of major tournaments, does very well, is very invested in the community and making everyone a better player. Um, he got banned uh, for years 
from the local tournament circuit here in Texas because he got caught not only making up rules, flubbing dice rolls, but literally using loaded dice in the tournament. Uh, and that pretty much ruined him uh, as far as being able to play competitively because from that point forward, no one trusted him. And uh, once you lose that uh, people's trust, then it's almost impossible to get it back um, if anyone knows who you are. Um, and ultimately the question is what would drive somebody to, to do that? Uh, and I, I think, because this is something that I, I struggled with a lot whenever I was first getting into the hobby is I think guys like that, that they preach a certain level of 40K and it becomes part of their personal identity. Uh, the They think of themselves as, yeah, I'm the good guy who's very good at 40K. And so the idea that they could be losing to what they consider to be a subpar player, somebody who's not as good as they are, um, would cause a bit of a mental schism for them. The, the, the reality doesn't uh, reflect their mental image of themselves. And so in order to uh, maintain that image they have of themselves, they'll wind up flubbing the role here, misrepresenting a role there. And just before they know it, they get so invested in winning it, no matter the cost, that... I think that they can they justify it to themselves, um, and it's it's something that, like I said, I, I, I struggled with a bit myself when I was uh, first learning to play just forty k in the garage with friends. Um, I, I was the best in the group, and there was one night when we were winning, uh, and uh, the thing the game turned, and I went from winning every single game to, huh, I might actually lose this game, and I straight up lied to a good friend's face about the rules for a character, not really even thinking about it. And then ultimately that la loss of trust uh, effectively killed the, that friendship. And I had, it took me, I, I, I took a break from 40K for about a year thinking about, well, why did I do that? And ultimately that's what I arrived back to was the fact that I, I had made this image of myself of, like, I'm the guy in my group who's good at 40K. And the second that was threatened, it, it was honestly uh, eye-opening, the, the, how little it took for me to uh, take that step. And I, I think for a lot of people, they um, ultimately wound up going through those same sort of moments and a lot of people don't come out looking very good at the end you know what it i guess the next kind of question that pops into my head though is you know there's a lot of things that kind of get there's a lot of people that'll look at situations in a game that they're playing and they'll see someone do something that's wrong and their immediate first thought is that person's cheating it's kind of like the first conclusion that they jump to immediately. Like if anything is done wrong, it's that it's cheating. Um, you know, 
for me, what comes to mind is where does the line get drawn? Like how how do I reckon the di- or reconcile a difference between someone who maybe is just having a bad day and is just forgetting rules? I know I've been there. I've done that. Um, versus someone who's who's really like okay, this person's legitimately cheating. You know, and to me, like I looked at the situation that was that was pretty big recently here and and to me it was kind of like well you know if there if there were rules here and there that are getting missed or you know they they just misread a dice in one situation or something like that like to me i don't make a big deal about that it's like okay you know that probably wasn't right and they you know probably owe their opponent an apology more than anything but when it's consistent Right. Like when you start seeing a repeated pattern of something like it's not just this rule, it's another rule, you know, and you're someone that, you know, is a very I don't know if household name is the right word for it, but something that it's like this is someone who is like super, super well known in competitive land like that person's really good. I don't what, what I don't really know is how you get there. Like how you get to a point where, you know, like you said, like how one little decision can all of a sudden open you up to realize that you've let something like that kind of get the better of you, I guess, in a way. Yeah. Um, I, I Honestly, I think it usually starts small. Um, the... Like the, the guy I was talking about, the loaded dice. That guy clearly went to the tournament with the idea that in a pinch I can pull these dice out and these dice will win me the game. Um, however, sometimes mid-game, that's when those decisions occur. And ultimately what differentiates an honest mistake versus cheating is intent. Uh, I, I Honestly... I think that most people, nobody I know who plays this game or really any traditional like dice and miniatures game will uh, be able to say that they've played every single game they've ever played without making any mistakes whatsoever. Yeah, there's a just... there's an adage that even goes that there is no perfect game of 40k. Yeah. Um, ultimately, the if. Both players play the game to the best of their ability and they come out at the other end being satisfied that the game happened, it was played as well as they could play it, um, then that's a good game of 40k. Regardless of whether everyone remembered every single rule and measured every single dice roll, sorry, every single measurement correctly. Uh, obviously that's the ideal that everyone should st- strive to, but there's no such thing as per- perfection. But I think the... There are a couple of things that whenever I'm playing uh, at a tournament or any place that is, uh, there's a prize on the line. Where the, the most likely case where somebody's going to uh, play unfairly and cheat are things like somebody who insists on rolling all of their dice rolls out of line of sight. So the only thing you can do is trust that, oh yeah, I rolled six sixes out of these six dice uh, for my guardsman saving throws. Um, Being a really outrageous example. Uh, And then somebody who won't 
produce rules if requested. If activated, they just say, oh no, that's just what I'm saying, or they only bring like Battle Scribe or something like that. Uh, as much as not going to knock Battle Scribe, they produce a pretty good product for putting lists together, but there have been mistakes, and sometimes those mistakes wind up in play. Um, and so the, the, those are the, the really the two points there I, I see the most often for bad behavior, dice and rules. You'll see some weird um, like measurement things. Um, however, honestly, it's so difficult to determine did that guy really measure that a little bit over on purpose or is that just because of the where he's standing on the table compared to his models it is, is almost impossible to prove intent with that. Yep. And what I've I've seen it before. I mean, I know I've I've if you've played 40k, you've had a measurement dispute, right? You've had something like, well, that's 12 inches, not 13, or you know, the 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 big okay, that's nine inches away, that's not nine inches away, that kind of thing. Um, to get back to your intent thing, you know, I think what what really works to diffuse tension in those situations is is to play with intent, like. You know, look, I'm I'm obviously going to be able to deep strike my guys in here and charge your unit. So if we're arguing over whether this is nine inches or that's nine inches, those kinds of things, um, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I think the way you diffuse that is just basically say, you know, I'm going to make this nine inch charge, right? Or I'm going to try to make this nine inch charge. I need to have them nine inches away, right? That Or 9.001 or whatever it is. I'm outside or basically nine inches away from your guys. Whether it is exactly or not, you're both playing with the intent that that's what it is. So if I roll a nine, I make the charge. I think where that kind of gets, uh, where I've, I've seen people... It, it get wronged by that is that I've seen people actually play with intent before um, at tournaments and actually have their opponent turn around the next game and say, oh, well, you know, I guess it's not in, you know, nine inches or I guess it's, you know, they're not in line of sight, that kind of thing where, you know, well, I, I placed all my models in my movement phase to have line of sight on that to shoot it. And now you're saying it doesn't have line of sight. Um, and consequently, that person got banned as well for, for, for doing that. So, you know, I think it's I, I think as long as you play with intent, um, that it makes the game a lot less confrontational, that it's not an argument over, you know, is that an inch? Is that not an inch? Um, it, it, you know, in, in I've, I, I, the, the other thing I was going to mention is that I've had situations where um, there's like a process you have to do for a sequence of things and in your head you know what that process is but you become so focused on that end result of where you got to get to that sometimes you forget about a step or sometimes you forget about what you're trying to do the one thing i've seen from really good players uh, like your top tier players is that they focus on the strategy and the higher they are much more focused on what is winning or losing the game and so they are they are it, it's very often that i've watched some very very well-known people like you know top 10 itc players um do very 
simple mistakes in the game. But in the reality of it, those things, do they matter at the end of the day for the result? No. But they should be something that you're trying to pay attention to make yourself a better player. Uh, and so when you flub a process like that, you know, you and I were talking about this and how it's it's okay if you if you missed that, but playing with intent is going to fix that for you so that it's it's clear to you as my opponent that you know what this process I was doing is to get here, right? So we know that I have to do this, then this, then this, and whether I skip those steps in between, uh, you know, or they can't get skipped in between because we're we're clear on what the process is that we have to do to get to that step, if that makes sense. Um, and as much as we're talking about uh, the the topic of like where we came from, I uh, I, I think everyone will, will enjoy the game much better if both peop- both players in the game give the other player the benefit of the doubt in a lot of these cases. Um, until unless it becomes very apparent something. Yeah, unwholesome is occurring, um, and there are a couple of things you can do uh, when you're playing your games to sort of prevent this type of behavior from occurring in the first place. Um, one, uh, have your rules. So I don't show up to a tournament without having access to pretty much every codex that is imaginable, either on in a, as a PDF, on a, a laptop, or have access to the new Warhammer app or Battlescribe. Um, some way that, so that whenever on my opponent's turn, when I'm not rolling dice, I can be reviewing his unit, seeing what his army is capable of. So that way, if suddenly those Harlequins move 24 inches and everything under the line of the Harlequin bikes move, um, suffers D3 mortal wounds for some reason, I can uh, say, no, the rules say that's not what those guys do. And the effectively, if at that point the, you've called them on it, they can either undo the, the cheaty thing they just did, or that's the point, if they become belligerent, that's the point where you call the TO. Um, but the other thing, and this is something that the uh, Space Wolf guy I played um, at that last tournament did that I was actually really happy with him for, is he produced one of those foldable dice trays and just said, hey, buddy, if you don't mind, could we roll all of our dice in the dice tray? So that way, the so the main thing about the rolling dice on the table, that I'm sure everyone can understand, is... A lot of times uh, when you're rolling dice, dice go, if you're rolling 30 dice, dice go everywhere. And so if you're playing 40K and you're trying to fast dice, you're looking for a backstop. Something that you can just throw the dice at and any loose dice will bounce off of this thing. And so uh, on that stream that I was talking about at the beginning of our discussion about this topic, the... Uh, that was what the guy was doing is he was using the building on his side of the table as a backstop. And because of that, the opponent couldn't see the dice and the dice were all in a very controlled like space and they weren't going everywhere. Uh, and so I think the introduction of those 
uh, of a dice tray to uh, a game is almost as valuable to me as a chess clock is for people who worry about their opponent taking up too much time. It's a way that you can hold your opponent accountable because, well, if everything's rolled in this place where everyone can see, it becomes that much easier to keep track of what's being rolled and how many dice are being rolled. So I think that's that's really good. I do want to get back to um, one of the things you did mention, which was, um, you know, the the. I think there's, I think what there is is there's. Times when you need to be honest with yourself of whether this is the hill you want to die on. Oh. Okay. So, yeah. So, let's say you have a. So there's a couple, contrasting situations you can deal with here. Um, and there, and how you handle them as a player actually says a lot about how people will you know enjoy playing with you when you actually play 40k like even competitively or just pick up. Yeah. Let's say let's start with situation one. Situation one is we get to the end of the game and Mike, you come up to me and you're you're like, hey, you know what? Round three or turn three, uh, I don't think we scored my line breaker there or my my what is it? Uh, it was recon in the ITC missions, but it's something else now. In essence, you say, hey, look, there was a score there I missed, and that's a point there. And, um, you know, you you tick that point off, and then you're, you know, you're, you're tallying up the scores and everything. You have a choice, basically. You can say, Mike, I'm going to give you that point, or no, Mike, I'm not going to give you that point. At the end of the day, could it be that you're trying to, you know, not you, but... In this example, would you be trying to pull the wool over my eyes and potentially get a free point? Sure. But in the grand scheme of things, if someone is going to beat you by one point in that kind of situation, you know, it's it's not necessarily, in my opinion, worth the... I don't know what it is, the confrontation yeah. over that one point, right? Uh, where... You know, okay, you might you might lose the round and you might lose the match. You know, it's okay. There there are worse things that can happen than than losing a game of forty k. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, if you think they kind of got away with that, you know, maybe you know you just kind of you, you let it go and you and you just kind of swallow it and move on to the next match. And you know what? Next time you play the person, maybe you're a little bit more you know, clear about that. Like, hey, look, I'm going to write these scores down at the end of every turn. I remember vividly, I had a I had a game on stream um, a, f a few years ago, actually. And uh, one of the things that happened was we, um, it was a match where I was going to win. I, w I was headed for a win, but it was going to be very close. And I was essentially winning on objectives. And um just the way the kill more, kill one, that kind of stuff was was going, uh, it was it was leaning towards me towards the end. But he had he basically had his whole army still on the table. So it's kind of one of those like I'm winning based on the scoring, not based on still being alive. And I was going to barely survive at the very end by a few models. He didn't realize this until we actually started adding, you know, finalizing the score there at the very end. And I had recorded score every, at the end of every turn. Uh, I had the paper sitting right next to me. And before we moved on to the next turn, I had basically checked off what was happening on there. Um, but my opponent decided that um, once that finished, 
that you know he was going to go back and kind of revise in essence what happened and it wasn't only it, it was only because of the stream that we were able to take a break uh basically the 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 unfortunate thing is is that it, it got a little confrontational and it became kind of like a contentious thing and you know it turned into this you know, well, we're not going to solve this by arguing on a stream. So it was kind of like, look, let's take a break. Let's go. You know, I can go replay the the mission. And so we're going to we're this is the score we're going to arrive at. Um, and I'll give you the benefit of the doubt on that. And so that's what we did. And then basically, thankfully, that was round one. And I was able to go to lunch and everything. And at lunch, what we were able to do is we were able to say, look, you know, let's go back on the replay. Let's look at the replay. What actually happened here? Did he actually score these points? And lo and behold, we did. Now, I the first thing I did was not to go to the TOs and the judges and to say, he cheated, he took advantage of me or what. I went and, I went and talked directly to the player and I said, hey, look, I know we said that. I went back and watched on the replay. It's very clear. I have it here. We can look at it. But the player wasn't, you know, they weren't going to contest it or anything. You know, it seemed pretty clear at that point that, yeah, okay. You know, we went back, we verified. It really didn't happen. You didn't score that point, And that ended up winning me the match. It was only after that that I ended up going to the TOs and actually trying to clarify it. The, the point of the matter is all those steps being taken during that kind of thing are all aimed to try and, like, diffuse it and not make it like, I, I'm in the right, prove me wrong. Take the flip side, like, I'm going to assume you're right. But let me verify that. Let me go back and look at this. And it makes it so that you're not getting into these like arguing matches or, yeah, you were right or I was right and that kind of thing. So, you know, all I, all I was kind of trying to do is point out that there are ways to handle these situations when they happen. Um, I, I think one of the best things is, you know, when you think someone's got a rules wrong, you know, hey, I'm not sure about that. You know, do you think you could show me in your book? where that rule is you know that doesn't sound right a person really trying to take advantage of you is going to open it and they're not going to show it to you right yeah. like they're they're going to say oh yeah it does say that or a person being honest with you is going to open it and say hey you know what i was wrong you know that person's being honest with you if they open it and it's wrong that's great and hey maybe through the course of the game that happens a few times i've had that happen you know i've done that multiple times either i was having a really bad day i was off my game or I just completely had a, uh, you know, a misassumption of how a certain uh, how a certain strategy worked. I, I remember Helm of the Third Eye was one of the things I got called out for uh, in tournament play because I thought it was something like every time they spent a command point on a five up, I got I got a command point back, and it was kind of like, okay, you spent three command points, so I roll three d three d six, and hey, I got two command points, kind of thing, you know. And uh, it took one of my opponents saying, you know, I don't think that's right, David. You know, so what, let's double check that in the book. And I go, oh, no, you feel more embarrassment for the fact that you got it wrong. And it, and it, and I think if you just look at it and t take it as like a learning moment and just kind of roll with it and be OK with being wrong, you'll be a better play in the long run because that'll just it, it, it makes you memorize that. Like, I'm not going to get home with the third eye wrong again. I, sh I sure remember getting it wrong before. So. Yeah, and I'm not espousing in any way that you should be belligerent with your opponents. Fact, you should always give people the benefit of the doubt, especially because this is a game we play for fun. Um, however, 
in the case where you are playing against the guy that is cheating on purpose, he's being belligerent about it, um, and it's very obvious that he's here to win, not having a good time. Um, that's the point where yeah, you have two options. Either you can just let them continue doing what they're, they're doing, or you can call the TO over. Because one thing to keep in mind, at least from my perspective, is if you don't... If you wind up in the situation where you're playing somebody who's very obviously um, playing in poor faith, and are they're cheating, they're messed up, very purposely getting rules wrong, uh, alerting the TOs about it will put them on watch to make sure that that player stops doing those that behavior for future games. Mm-hmm. Or if they don't learn learn their lesson, uh, get ejected from the tournament. Uh, unfortunately, I've been in that position a few times where I'm playing against somebody who <laughs> just. Be- because of sheer happenstance, I know their army very, very well. And uh, just every single turn, every phase of the game, I'm having to know that's not how that works. And we pull out the codex. And okay, so we start playing the game, like, no, that's not how that works. And, uh, pull out the codex. And ultimately, I, I wound up winning the game, but it's exhausting playing against yeah. that. Uh, yeah. And so eventually, I just waved the TO, the TO over as like, hey, can you just keep an eye on this game? Because this is something fishy is going on here. Yeah. And yeah. The game went smooth. So, <laughs> so, speaking of tournaments, uh, this week is competition week at Tiskin Podcast. So, we've got um, some interviews lined up later this week. Uh, so, keeping on the topic of competitive 40K. The meta. So the meta right now, Mike, certainly seems to me like what we're facing. Like if I'm going to go to a tournament, you know, and I've got to be ready to face some stuff. It sounds like what I need to be ready to face are Deathwing Terminators, Harlequins, Dark Eldar, Death Guard. You know, yeah. those are the boogeymen. Those are the big contenders at the moment. Yeah. So... Let's put our Thousand Suns hat on. Magnus, what do we do? Okay. Well, let's examine the two different types of lists we're looking at here. So, Death Guard and Death Wing, lots of death here, uh, are both elite, heavy, very durable armies. Um, and so what you can expect from them behavior-wise is that for them to move forward about halfway up the table, camp on a set of objectives, and score points passively. Uh, most likely, you'll they'll have fairly middling shooting, effectively lots of storm bolters, um, a few long-range options, but they, that isn't the main thrust of the list. Um, and... Generally, they'll just outlast whatever they're up against. Uh, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, we have Harlequins and Dark Eldar. So both of these armies, they are extremely fast. The fastest armies in the game. And deal tons of damage at 
usually close range, but Dark Eldar have some very powerful ranged options as well. But in exchange, tend to be comparatively fragile when compared to Marines. Uh, and so, effectively, they will have complete board control in terms of positioning. Uh, and so, instead, uh, most other armies will have to play defensively in order and try to sort of gain objectives passively. So, if from a Thousand Suns perspective, if I'm going into a five-game tournament, uh, let's say that the first game's going to be just random whatever else. So, can't really account for that. You're probably going to wind up playing against a Deathwing player, a Death a Guard player, and the two Eldar lists. So, you, we need to be able to deal with both things that are incredibly hard in terms of very good armor, they have special rules that reduce the damage that they take, as well as hyper-fast aggressive lists that tend to be... They, well, they can attack you from wherever. And so, luckily, Thousand Suns actually, bizarrely enough, have uh, several good units here for dealing with these types of armor. Yeah, uh, that's impossible. I've been told they're trashed here. I mean... I, I, I think that they have some some problems, uh, but I don't think they're trashed here. Um, not the problem is that they they're, they're, they uh, number of viable units has been sort of reduced over what it was. Yeah. Um, but there's still some very good solid ch like nuggets there. So the big thing, to, the big takeaway from the, those four armies is one, they have almost no psychic presence. Uh, Death Guard might bring a Psyker, perhaps two, uh, but nothing compared to what Thousand Suns can bring. And it's not going to be the main thrust of the list. Death Wing aren't going to bring a Psyker. Uh, it's just not the way that the army plays. All of their buffs are tied up into their special characters and... Um, a couple of the other support characters. There's not no reason to bring a, a Deathwing librarian, as far as I can tell. Uh, Dark Eldar don't get psychers, so don't have to worry about that. And the types of lists that we're seeing played for Harlequins don't usually include a Shadow Seer, and even if they do bring them, it's not again. It's just not enough to really hamper the amount of psychic potential that um, a good Thousand Suns list can pump out. So Mortal Wound, uh, I won't say spam because you can't really spam it anymore, but Mortal Wounds will go through very easily. Uh, against these armies. So is that in essence boxing me into a certain build? So essentially like I've, you know, if I'm hearing you right, I've got to maximize how many Mortal Wounds I can I can put out, you know, Aramon, so, Magnus. I, I think that's definitely one direction you can go, and I think you'll do very well against these four armies with that build. Um, the other thing that um, performs very well against all four of these armies, amusingly enough, is Inferno Bolters. But um, wait! But wait, they have invulnerable saves. They have four up, sa four up invulnerable saves on a lot of them, right? Or, or yeah, so the, what is all it? All of this stuff has either like four or five up invulnerable saves. But hear me out. So Terminators 
all have a two-up armor save. So Infernal Bolters are AP minus two, which is just enough to get them to their invulnerable save. Uh, against Deathwing, anything higher than strength four is wounded on fours anyways. So there's no point in shooting high strength guns at them that will usually have better AP or better damage. Right. Uh, Death Guard reduce the damage of anything shot at them by one. And so anything that has higher than damage one is now inefficient. So what's the point? Yep. And Eldar, everything there is toughness three or four. So Infernal Bolters wound just fine against that. And not everything in both of the... Well, so everything in Harlequins has a four-minute save. There's no getting around that. But we have Death X at a better range than right. the And right. in Stark Eldar, most of their stuff doesn't actually have an influence uh, So once you peel them out of their Venoms, everything's very fragile. So it seems like there's two, there's two kind of nuts to crack here. One is the the tough high invuln save multi-wound models, right? With the with just very good saves. And which is Death Guard and the Deathwing Terminators. And then on the flip side you have saves you need to respect, but you need to you need to get them out of their transports, right? You need to yeah. you need to essentially hit them first. And so those t- the, both of those cases seem like you're going to have to play completely different. Yeah. So if I were to play a Thousand Suns list, I would probably bring Magnus um, because honestly, against three out of those four matchups, Magnus is almost untouchable. Uh, the only army that really yeah. has the tools to deal with them is Dark Eldar. Um, and even with them, there's a trade-off with Dark Eldar between bringing uh, Dark Lances and bringing Venom Cannons. Uh, Venom Cannons are a little better against Magnus than they used to be, but it's still not a great proposition. Uh, and so... And you you have the option to outflank Magnus now too. So even in even if a situation where you know you know hey he's got the power to table me here turn one, just toss Magnus in reserves. Yeah, um, but then uh, the other th- so other than that, bring Aramon, bring other Psyker HQ level Psykers, and bring a twenty man block of Rubrics. Uh, with the intention to uh, deep strike them using their special stratagem, have them stand up nine inches away from pretty much your opponent's entire army or whatever units you intend to murder the hardest this turn, cast prescience on them, use uh, veterans of the long war, and uh, just go to town. On uh, whatever you want, on whatever you want. The idea being that the, this is your hammer. You're using it to crack open your opponent's shell and re- reveal the gooey insides. For uh, 
the Terminator lists, what this means is you want to effectively neutralize their best Terminator unit as quickly as possible. Um, after you've done that, the rest of the army will more or less fall apart. For Harlequins and uh, Dark Eldar, that means kill the transports. Uh, once they've lost the transports, they die to a stiff breeze. And the last thing is, do not bring vehicles of any kind uh, yeah. at the moment. The, the main reason being, of course, is that both Harlequins and Dark Eldar shred anything that has the vehicle keyword. Haywire. With Haywire. Yeah. So there's no point. So something like potentially a Mutalith Vortex Beast can, can kind of sneak its way in there, right? Yeah, the Mutalith definitely has utility. Um, if you're bringing the Mutalith, I'd definitely give it a target for its abilities. So a unit of Chaos Spawn or a unit of... Uh, Zengors. Zengors. And you, you can also... I think if you're going to take a Mutalith, you almost have to take something like uh, Cult of Duplicity. Because delivery becomes a big issue, especially on um, long long map boards. Uh, you know, they, they just don't move quick enough, and they can't go through walls and things like that. So you're going to be out in the open, and, you know, if, if you do reserve Magnus, he's obviously going to be, you know, like prime target number one. Um, yeah, and Duplicity so. also sees extra utility because... One, it allows us to completely outmaneuver a Terminator list. Yep. Um, but it allows the Thousand Suns to at least, on a certain level, compete against the sheer mobility of yep. the, uh, the Eldar lists. And the big thing is, if there's the constant threat that a unit of Rubric Marines is going to get teleported uh, to a an awkward flank of the Eldar list and assassinate characters or attack valuable heavy weapons units uh, the it'll force the player to play more defensively which will play to the thousand cents advantage yep and uh, you also you know, I mean cult of duplicity in my mind has really become I think the 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 gold standard right now for cults um, I know that mutation has its merits with being able to uh, I believe they have the ability to fall back shoot and charge uh, there is some cool stuff to that. Uh, I believe I'm. I believe I'm thinking about the right one. Um, time is, is also a good one because you. But you really only have the Cult of Magic Terminator, and I think you can potentially sneak Cult of Time in there uh, with like Magnus and then a you know a, a patrol of Thousand Suns in there. But you're going to run out of command points pretty quick there. So you know, and though you're you're really going to have to stretch to bring them in. Um, but at the end of the day, he might be worth it. I mean, the, the amount of mortal wounds he can put out is pretty dang good for like 120 points for your model. Um, and then the other thing is Cult of Time can also be interesting because if you don't, like if your play style is to take the giant rubric blob and infiltrate them into, say, the center of the table and just take over the middle of the table or take over an entire like quarter of the table with just 20 rubric marines like that, um, you know, you can take them as Cult of Time and you can be reviving, what, D3 units every turn uh, or D3 models every turn, uh, which is pretty dang good. Um, not to mention, I think you can, I think that only applies to infantry or rubrics and terminators when you go to, to use that. Um, but, uh, you know, terminators, 
I don't know, Mike. I'm not right now. The Scarabacult, Cult, I'm not totally sold on. Um, you know, for their points, they 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 look better than they actually perform. Yeah. So Scarabacult, Cult, before the release of the Dark Eldar Codex, I think actually still had uh, good utility for a Thousand Suns list, um, predominantly because they put out a ton of shots. Um, when you take a large unit of them, and they synergize very well with Cult of Time. However, now that Dark Eldar Venom Cannons are now damaged too, uh, I, I wouldn't touch them, uh, to be frank. There are too many multi-damage weapons seen that see play all the time. Harlequins, Half-Harlequins, Kisses, Infusion Pistols... Dark Eldar have literally every heavy weapon in their kit is even the ones that are anti-infantry are damaged two or better. Um, Terminators, every other Terminator in the game, uh, their melee weapons are now damaged two or better. Whereas the Scarab Occult, they're a ranged threat. They have a Psyker, though a, a crappy Psyker, but a Psyker nonetheless. But in close combat, they just get mulched by the Terminators because they haven't received the extra wound yet. Their weapon power swords just aren't enough. Yeah, although I will say, if you if you look at the matchups that are there, let's say you death hex the Terminators, that works. Um, you know, let's say you're fighting Death Guard. Well, you know, they're not reducing the you know damage by any more than it needs to be. It's still remaining pretty efficient. So. You no, know, there is there is some gains there, but it's not. It's more the price you have to pay to bring them, and the fact that they're terminators and people, I think, hype them up more than they actually are. Does that make sense? Like they they'll see them as a bigger threat. Yeah, I mean, of the four armies that we're talking about in relation to Thousand Suns, the only matchup that they fare even passingly well against is the death guard terminators but they still lose that matchup because the death guard are all swinging with multi-damage weapons um whereas right power swords we got plus one strength but they're still t5 and i think this as as we keep rehashing like all the things that are doing multi-damage now all the things that are you know they've either got reduction in multi-damage or things like that I think what this underlines is that all of dust, all is dust, is going to change. I there's, really do hope it does. I, I mean, there's just no, there, there's no way you can look at the style of the game now. Splinter cannons going to two damage, heavy bolters going to do damage. You know, th there's no way you can you can kind of look at the game and then say, well, you know, hey, you get to you get to add one to your save if it's a one damage weapon. Well, great, that those don't exist anymore. So, I mean, yeah, they're, they're becoming kind of exceedingly rare. I, I remember, so back in the transition from 5th edition to 6th edition, there was this huge upset because suddenly AP went from, okay, a handful of things ignore Terminator's armor save to, like, every army had, like, three to four options that completely obliterated terminators um and as the game has gone by and the additions have turned 
things have definitely become more lethal. Um, and so if you wind up with a codex that's a little old, um, the tools that were provided to allow them to survive the whatever lethality was prevalent when the codex was released are just not enough. And so I, I think that's the reason why we are seeing the marine lists that are still as killy as they've ever been are starting to become less prevalent is because those their survival tools aren't up to snuff in this current edition. Yeah. Well, I don't know what else you can do against Harlequins in Dark Eldar, though. Um, I think it's a really tough matchup if you don't yeah. if you don't have a way to take the board, you're in you're in a bad spot because essentially they're coming to you, and as you and I showed really early on in what 2019 2020 when when you were basically running the very early early signs of the Harlequin lists, um, they're able to just get out and and run you over. And unless you can pop those things, there's not much you can do. And even then, you, you have to have something to screen or you have to be thinking, hey, I'm not going to leave this whirlwind sitting over here on the, on the corner where you can just go and charge it, turn one, that kind of thing. Yeah. So. The big thing with BD Harlequins is you have to put them on the back foot that you can't allow them to control the tempo of the game. So like that, that last game I played against you with my Harlequins when you brought the list with Magnus... The big thing is you had no concrete way of choosing when the engagement happened. Effectively, right. it was entirely up to my leisure as to, okay, I'm going to end the game now. Uh, and so I don't think uh, we, were, we had access to Psychic Awakening whenever we played that game. Uh, either that or it was still very new. We did. I had the Cult of Magic Terminator, and he, uh, because right. he, he was the one bright spot in my list. Yeah. But the list I had was designed more to counterpunch, right? It was, yeah. it was more designed to poke at you with a couple whirlwinds. I had Magnus and two Demon Princes that essentially were there to let you kind of come towards me and then I would respond. Like I could warp time Magnus up and go to town or I could I could put the demon princes in and let them just start to pick things apart. The problem becomes when your punch is so strong that that's all that's left, you don't really, I mean, you can't play that game, I think, with Harlequins because they will, you can't trade stuff, as I've heard it called with them. They, they will out-trade you all day long. Yeah, effectively the big thing is you have to have something that forces them to engage this in a disadvantageous manner right because if you do the thing that i usually like to do where i move up turn one and i just shoot with everything dozen uh, mm -hmm. tons and tons of shuriken cannon fire haywire the void weavers and their weird prism cannon and soften up all the targets that i consider to be your counter your counter threat in turn two, that allows me to just disembark and my second wave, which is all the Harlequins of the cards, uh, just wipes out any other credible threats. Uh, if you have duplicity and you have something nasty enough that 
it appearing out of nowhere uh, will completely wreck that plan. Then that forces the Harlequin player to either A, try to engage turn one, which is a risky proposition because that opens you up to counterplay where your opponent can heroically intervene with this, a large unit of uh, rubrics or Zangors can be used to screen. Or you deploy more defensively, try to screen out the deep striking 20-man rubric block or 20 Zangors or whatever big nasty thing you're going to use to really ruin the Harkon player's day. But then that means that you're wasting movement on trying to screen out something as opposed to doing something more proactive like killing your opponent or taking an objective. And terrain obviously plays a big a big part of this because I, I, I do know that the tables we played on were not... I'm pretty sure they did not have as much ruins, uh, ruins on them as they probably should uh, according to 9th edition standards. I mean, this yeah. was an 8th edition game, so... Um, but they, they had, if I recall correctly, the middle of the table had plenty of screen. It's just the periphery, um, which is where you largely deployed. That, um, oh, that's where all the terrain was. Of, yeah. Uh, line of sight blocking terrain. Yeah. So. Uh, all right. So let's say. Let's say I'm going to build my list now, Mike, and I'm I'm going to be looking at like heavy support options in this list. Uh, in Thousand Suns right now. What do you like in the heavy support list? Or would you like me to start on that? Well, I mean... It's, uh, <laughs> tough tough question to just lead into there. I get it. Tough question. So, I would say of the heavy support lists uh, of units for Thousand Suns, um, taking into account what I was saying in our last segment about uh, vehicles being trash. Uh, I wouldn't take a Predator. Uh, I wouldn't take a Vindicator. As much as uh, the Vindicator is much better than it was in previous editions, the how much more deadly uh, all of the anti-vehicle weapons are uh, pretty much invalidates them. Uh, the Defiler, the Forge Fiend, and the Mauler Fiend Actually, I could see them seeing some play. The only reason being they're more survivable than the Rhino chassis vehicles. Um, they have an influence save, they generate, uh, and they also, unlike those other two, operate very well as a single sort of one-off unit. Effectively, they, because we have uh, the Hellforge strategy, stratagem, which allows you to reroll hits and wounds in either the shooting phase or the assault phase. Uh, or both. Better by themselves, uh, or, or both, uh, than they do as part of a larger sort of detachment of uh, vehicles. Right. Um, the Mule of the Vortex Beast, uh, we, we discussed it a little bit when we were talking about uh, things that would see play. I, I think that it definitely is more viable uh, than perhaps even the demon engines. Um, however, it's a very weird unit. Uh, I think we've discussed in the past about how it 
it's a big monster, so on one hand, sort of wants to be in close combat, but it's also a support unit. It's very finicky, and you have to sort of build around it, um, because you want to have something where you can take advantage of all the things that it's good at. So, for instance, taking it into a placid detachment and then t- giving it a big block of Zengors or right. uh, perhaps, um, I think, target Terminators, too, uh, that you can effectively deep strike them next to each other in the movement phase so that way whenever you use the warp vortex you, if you roll one of the buffs you have a unit to apply it to that can actually mm-hmm. take advantage of it now the drawback on that is that the you know i agree with you on the vortex beast he i, I kind of look at it in the in the reverse of how you do in that you build around them i i include him when there's a good reason to and when you pointed out a big blob of zangors maybe Terminators, um, maybe something that's trying to charge in. Uh, th- that, to me, is where he really shines. Uh, and the other thing, I, if I recall, his buffs work with Zinch units, right? Yeah, so it is... I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that all of his buffs work to a Zinch unit. So he actually is one of the rare models that synergizes with Zinch demons. So perhaps you're bringing in a Lord of Change or something like that and you want to charge into combat, or maybe you've got Screamers you want to do the same thing with or something like that. He can actually let them re-roll their charge. Uh, there are stratagems to let you do that. So the way I look at when I include a, a, a Vortex Beast is, do I, have a, do I have something that needs his help? Uh, do I need to be able to re-roll that charge? Or do I need to be able to like increase their AP, make them stronger, you know, things like that. I don't think the mortal wound uh, attacks the the I think it's the one and the six on there where you can do you know d3 to one target or you know one to every target within nine. I don't think they're that good, uh, and the reason being is that the range is nine inches. So no matter what you do or where you deploy the model, you're you're only going to get the the nine inch range, which means you're not going to ever be able to like deploy it next to some stuff and then blow it up with mortal wounds. Yeah, so the beam of unreality targets one unit as 18 inch range. Uh, it's okay. Uh, but yeah, the warp flare, if you right. strike it, is pretty much worthless. Um, but yeah, it targets every. It uh, picks each unit. Uh, so good catch there with the synergy with Chaos Demons or even Chaos Space Marines. Um, actually, <laughs> you could do some cool stuff there. Chaos uh, Space Marine Terminators would be pretty decent. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, I, effectively those four units, um, I could see including them in the list. And even of those, I, I would consider the Vortex Beast to be the only truly viable one. And that really depends, yeah. at least for me, on what's already in the list. Um the Chaos Land Raider doesn't even deserve being mentioned. I'm just including it for the sake of uh, being uh, thorough, I suppose. I mean, in reality, it's not that bad. The problem is you have no way to really protect... It has no invuln, right? And a twip say, like what you were pointing out before with the Vindicator, that it's, it's basically made irrelevant by Haywire. And the fact that Haywire is going to be so prevalent with those armies uh you're just not going to have an option to to keep the thing alive yeah the, the main problem with the land raider is it's expensive it isn't 
all that much more durable than a rhino. Yeah. Or you're literally paying three times the points, and as a transport, it doesn't really do that particularly well. And as a gunboat, you could buy two predators for the price of a chaos generator. Yeah. Or, or even better, even better, you can even take uh, what I like are the the Forge World uh, rapier batteries. Uh, so the rapier batteries, uh, we didn't used to be able to take these uh, because when For the Forge World stuff first came out, uh, they did a, a revamp on which Chaos Legions could take the could take those Forge World units in their army. Uh, so in like Eighth Edition, what they did is they said, well, um, you know, if you can give it a mark as each, uh, then you know it can be these units from these categories in here could be taken. So there was a whole list of them. Uh, but then they had a couple exclusions in there, and one of them was the rapier battery. And the reason they excluded it is because it had Chaos Space Marines as uh, gunners on there. So it's very similar to, like, um, a Thunderfire cannon, how the tech, the tech Marine comes with the Thunderfire cannon. Uh, it's very similar. You'd have two Space Marines, and then essentially you'd get two Space Marines that could act independently of the uh, the Rapier gun, but then you had certain interactions, and it got complicated from there in terms of what the thing could do. Uh, it wasn't that great. Uh, there were situations where you could make them work. In Ninth Edition, I think it's a, the door's a lot more open. So they've now done away with that because they've done away with the fact that they have... Um, they don't technically have the, the models there anymore, although you're supposed to have them for, I guess, display purposes, kind of like the Grots with the um, the mech guns and orcs, where they just count as, like, wound counters, I guess. Um, similar to that, but the Rapiers have some very good options. So one of them is they come with uh, something that doesn't really appear anywhere in the standard co uh, uh, Codex catalogs, which is a quad heavy bolter. Uh, and that's exactly what you think it is. It's four heavy bolters bolted together. And it's as amazing as it sounds. Uh, that does get you a way to kind of get the new heavy bolters kind of into your army at a good price. I think they roll for about 85 points for one. Uh, so it's not bad. Uh, you get a little... Uh, it, it has a very small footprint. It's a very small model. that um, counts as a vehicle. So you can move and you can shoot without penalty. Um and in addition to that, there are some really good weapons. Uh, there is the laser destroyer variant of it uh, that can actually shred anything that it shoots at if it gets a little bit of like re-rolling or help to ensure that the, the low shots that it have get through. Uh, it does have to sit still to get the full effectiveness, but it's still pretty dang good. Uh, a, there, there are a couple other options in there. One is a mortar. Uh, so Thousand Suns finally get a nice cheap uh, mortar, but it's nothing to write home about. It's not like the the, the Scorpius uh, that still exists, but has just been kind of um, uh, made irrelevant by its points. And uh, I think there's a couple other options that are in there um, for it. I might be thinking of one more like a plasma. There's like an ectoplasma version of it or something like that, but... In any case, uh, I think the rapiers are really worth it if you just want to sneak a good heavy gun into your list because they're small. You can put them where you want. You, you, you don't have a lot of downsides to them other than the fact that there's not a, a lot of wounds on them. Um, you know, so if, if once you put it out in the open, it's probably going to be gone the next turn. Um, and, and yeah, that, that's definitely one of them. The, the other heavy support options, I'm, I'm right there with you, Mike. I, I think 
if you're going to take any, stay away from the vehicles. Um, the Defiler's probably got some value there that's hard to ignore. Um, you know, and in a list that you're fighting against Haywire, I, I, I would expect not to have them on the table at the beginning. You're, you'll probably have to reserve them. Uh, or at least be able to try to hide them uh, so you can, you know, take duplicity and deliver them and then go to town. But, you know, the the everything else is pretty much just going to have a really bad time against Haywire and, and a lot of the other armies really too because you might not be getting hit by, you know, 6 damage or D6 damage guns that they have tons of. What you're probably going to get hit by is a ton of, like, 2 damage weapons and... You know, something like a Mauler Fiend only takes, what, five or six of those to get through? And, you know, it's gone. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of armies, five or six, getting five or six two damage wounds through on something is not that big of a deal. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of how I look at it. I, I probably have everything. I think the best thing in the army right now, heavy support-wise, is definitely the Mutalith. Um, and it's more just because it has has more use right it works a lot better with the army it's interactive you can do stuff with it you can buff other stuff you can you can you know you can send it in and let it do its thing so actually has a stratagem that does this stuff actually has a stratagem too so you can pick the one that you want so well all right so our final topic tonight um I have been sitting in here talking about 40k like I've been playing 40k for a year now. Mike, I haven't been playing 40k. I've played maybe two, two or three TTS games or tabletop simulator games. Um, I've definitely read up, stayed on topic. I, guys, I'm sure there's other folks out there that are in the same boat as me. You haven't been able to get out and actually play an actual 40k game. Uh, indeed, I am actually going this weekend to play my first one, coming out of uh, not quarantine, but more just isolating. So I've got my got my vaccine, uh, good to go. Have have waited my actually three four weeks now since my my second shot. So um, I am good to go, I believe. And most of the folks that in my gaming group, uh, as you know, Mike, they they've all been doing a really good job of you know uh, playing safely. You know, the yeah. the tables and everything. They got hand sanitizer. Everybody wears masks, that kind of thing. So there's there's definitely some great um, great stuff that the, you know, the group has been doing. So I feel pretty comfortable going up there and playing with them. Um, end of the day, that's not my point. My point is, I don't know what I'm doing. I went from actually knowing what I'm doing to I don't know what I'm doing now. Um, what's a good way for me to get up to speed? So... You're uh, off to a good start. You uh, you read the rules. I cannot stress this enough. It's <laughs> a, a good first step. Should I reread them? And which rules? So, I would, um, before playing the first game, just reread the core rules of the game. Because as much as it's very similar to 8th, there are a couple of... I guess it gotchas, things that are a little different that can throw you off. And um, for Thousand Suns at least, um, and Chaos Space Marines, any of the the actually like fluffy good codexes, um, the unit rules haven't really changed much. Um, but the next thing I would do to really prepare is 
if you're playing just to get for fun, I wouldn't do this step, mind you. But if you're going out to a tournament, I would do the same thing that I think every other tournament player does is try to get a gauge for what's being played. Um, the It's the worst feeling ever to uh, spend a month or two putting together a list, painting it up, getting that ready to go, everything based and squared away, and you show up to a tournament ready to face, as, as a personal example, uh, a bunch of knights, and the knight meta's gone. Now it's this other meta. And he's like, well, these guns are all useless. Um, I know that feeling very well. Yeah. <laughs> or you just, you get the meta wrong, right? You just, yeah. you get it wrong. Trying to expect so, what you're going to see at a tournament. Having a, a bit of an idea for what you're going to see is, of course, very, very beneficial. Um, but lastly, I would just say play the game. Um, and Play your first game slow. Make sure that you're going through the, the steps correctly because it's at least the way, with the way I learn. It's, it's one thing entirely to read the rules and have, a, have the rules down pat. But not having actually played them, it's sometimes difficult to uh, necessarily know what the, how those rules necessarily will interact with the table. Um, and so, like, before I had a friend over to play 40k, I just set up my table with two armies and played through one round of the game. Just to see, okay, how is this different? And I think one thing that will really surprise a lot of people is the maps are smaller. And the 24-inch No Man's Land, it does not necessarily exist on some of these new maps. Um, and so... Part of the reason why Harlequins are so much, even more um, brutal than they were before, is now you have even less space to hide. Even if you get a hammer and anvil style map, um, there's not as much of a buffer between you and them. And there's nowhere else to run. Uh, so it... The game really gets into sort of the, the core of the game where both armies are trading blows much quicker than in previous editions. So all those sound really good, and uh, I think I'm uh, I think I'm on the right track. Uh, I I've been uh, I wouldn't say I've been trying to get to get my list right out of the gate. I actually am less concerned about my list and less concerned about the meta and more concerned about you know understanding how the game is scored uh, so maybe re i've been looking at the missions a little bit more so when you say rereading the rules um maybe i should revisit those core rules uh, i've been reading a little bit more of the actual mission rules so i'm trying to familiarize myself with how the game is going to be scored right so i can focus on playing playing to score rather than necessarily playing to kill stuff and then you know when when it comes to game comes to game time I'm, I'm just going to bring a list that's got a bunch of stuff that i felt like playing with and really you know i don't expect to go through the game you know my first three games or so coming back here and be at all at any kind of effective level so i'm not worried 
I know that that's not going to give me a fair shake on if I tried to like get my list right and say, hey, I've got the right list here to play this. I can't judge how my list is going to do based on that. What I really want to do is just take something that's got a little bit of everything so that I can feel like I've got some Raptors or maybe I've got some Berserkers. I've got a Lord of Skulls. I've got a Contemptor. I've got Drop Pods. I've got, you know, lots of weird stuff like that. And it's really just to kind of say, okay, how are these things working? There might be things here that surprise me that work better than what my, what my you know, assumptions think they're going to do. And if I set myself up like, hey, I'm going to build a list, try to get it right, and I've still got to get myself playing better with the, with the current edition, uh, then, you know, the list doesn't matter. I'm not going to give results of any value to size up my list anyway. Uh, so, you know, I just try to focus on, you know, rereading the missions and, you know, going through and making sure I at least have revised a lot of my uh, units rules and everything. So there's nothing that's uh, kind of a surprise to me. So, yeah. And the other thing, of course, is making sure you're familiar with the FAQs. Um, for uh, yeah. you're playing because yep. uh, there are some weird um, well, I say weird but adjustments to some things that people have yep. taken for granted for so long that, uh, yeah. there's there's also some neat things in there like I just I just went through this the this past weekend we can't advance in warp time anymore right correct so it's not clear when you go and look in the FAQs why we can't advance a warp time. Uh, and really what it boils down to is it's two pieces of information or two, two things put together that basically one, one rule essentially says when you do a movement that's out of phase, it's considered a normal move. Uh, and the second part of it is that they define a normal move separately from a move that advances. Uh, so an advance is a different type of move. So what it essentially says is that you're moving out of the phase, which means you're doing a normal movement, which means you don't have the ability to advance anymore uh, under warp time. So you can still move, advance, and then warp time further, but you just can't advance when you're moving under warp time. So little things like that that, you know, I, even at the end of the day, I wouldn't even get too worried about that. And I'm, I'm, I know there's going to be interactions or things that surprise me. I have to play the game to find those things out. Like I have to, there's no amount of reading. Uh, well, I'll say, Mike, I know you have a pretty good memory when you read stuff, but for me, I'm a little bit more human and I can't just pick up the books and just read them and memorize what's there. I kind of have to play the game a bit and I have to kind of see how it, how everything works out and kind of spot those things where it's like, okay, well that got me. So, you know, it is what it is. And I, I definitely think everyone has different ways that they learn things. Um, and honestly, the do what you have to do to become familiar with the new rules and everything else will fall into place. Um, not, I'm not necessarily saying that you can completely ignore those other things I talked about, the uh, knowing what types of things you should expect to play. And you can't just bring necessarily whatever jinky list that you want to bring and expect to unnecessarily do well um, yeah. against if you just completely throw caution to the winds. But if you have a good, strong foundation upon which to play, even if if you brought a, and this is be kind of a weird one if somebody did, but a Thousand Suns vehicle list, uh, you can still make a good showing even against the worst matchups, just because yep. 
you know what your things do, you know how to play the game, and you may lose, but you'll go out with style because you yeah. played your own game. Yeah, I just set your expectations low. You know, just <laughs> focus on. I don't mean that as in like don't have fun. Have fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean like focus on just going through the motions of the game. You know, taking your time. Realize you're gonna get your. You're gonna lose, right? Like when when I started competitively. I, I think I lost something like five or six weeks in a row, all three games during the weekend before I actually got to a point where I was like, okay, like the game started to click and I could actually start to play the thing a little bit more competently. I usually like to tell people that are new to the hobby that I lost every game I played for the first year. Um, yeah. Just because there's so much to learn. But just on the topic of playing your own games, this is a little just a bit of a tangent, but back when I first started playing the game, I had a buddy who used to own his own 40k shop uh, that uh, he played Dark Eldar and I played Craft Worlds. And uh, we'd be playing the mission and um, I was just, man, what is this guy doing? Because he would ignore the objectives. He uh, would just do the what seemed to be the most <laughs> random stuff. Well, it turns out what he was doing was hunting my Exarchs. And so he had a kill tally for each of his units. <laughs> yeah, this one's killed your Banshee Exarch five times. Like, really? Like, and so that that's the, was a, really a eye-opening moment. I was like, man, this guy is having more fun than I am. And he's just has his own objectives. Really? Um, which I, I, I think is just a great example of how you can play the game your own way and still have right. fun with it, even if you're not necessarily conforming to whatever the meta is or whatever the mission is. I was forgetting one thing, though. I think there is there there is one surefire way to do really, really well, uh, no matter what. And I think, um, I think you just have to say, hey, look, Magnus did nothing wrong. I mean, once you get that thick noggin, yeah. everything else falls Yep, I mean you could you could actually play the whole game and just use that phrase kind of like I am group, just be like Magnus did nothing wrong, and and just use that for every response in the whole game. And I mean, uh, you have to mix in some all the dusts though. A, yeah. Okay. All right. I'll allow that. I'll allow that too. Yeah. yeah. See how your game goes. Try that out. Yes. Do that. <laughs> all right, guys. Till next time.